You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Health Podcast. And I have John Tucker, DMD, uh, founder of Dental Sleep Medicine Education. Website is uh, TuckerEducationalExcellence.com. And for his bio, I have uh, that he's a graduate of the University of Pittsburgh School of Dental Medicine. And he's completed uh, Boston seminars in implant dentistry, University of Buffalo Aesthetic Dentistry Program, and all levels of uh, the Dawson Center for Advanced Dental Study and the University of Buffalo Patient Mastery Program. And he's a diplomate of the American Board of Dental Sleep Medicine which I didn't even know there was such a thing. But, uh, John, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Rich, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. I'm doing well, sir, and yourself? Good. Well, I'm glad to be talking to you. So um, what is, what is dental sleep here. medicine, by the way? Yeah, what, so what, what is dental sleep medicine? Well, you know what? It's funny. We're doing this podcast, and this is Sleep Awareness Week. And dental mm. sleep medicine focuses on treating the patients that have obstructive sleep apnea, that are intolerant of their CPAP therapy. And CPAP stands for... You got a friend like that? We all have friends like that. (laughs) So uh, um, CPAP is basically a vacuum cleaner in reverse. It blows air down the airway to help pneumatically splint the airway open at night while we sleep. Okay. Yeah, I've I've talked to uh, a lot of sleep doctors about apnea, and I've seen CPAPs. you know, it's like a plastic mask that fits over your nose or your nose and mouth or your mouth. And I'm sure there's other permutations. And, um, you know, before we talk about the other ways to fix someone's apnea or, or work on to improve it, what, what's wrong with uh, CPAPs? Why do so many people have problems with them? That's a great question, Rich. Um, you know, if you look at what the uh, industry uses as a standard for CPAP tolerance or intolerance, it's about 50%. So that means 50% of the patients that are diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea cannot tolerate that treatment. Part of the problem is the pressure that's involved to pneumatically blow open that the airway. And a lot of people just can't handle that. And the other problem is a lot of people have nasal issues that they, are, they can't breathe through their nose. And a lot of times that's when they're put on that full face mask and, uh, you know, they sound like Darth Vader at night. And, you know, it, it just blows the airway open. And, 
you know, there are lots of issues for a lot of people in trying to be compliant with that. And uh, that's an issue because this is a really, really, really deadly disease. And it affects a lot of Americans. And uh, mm. we need to have those people that have this disease that are intolerant of CPAP therapy be treated. So, um, again, what is it about the CPAP that causes people to not like it? Do they feel like the air blowing in their mouth is choking them? Or they just and, you know, like they're being claustrophobic because of the mask or what happened? Great question, Rich. You know, a lot of it is claustrophobia, sinus infections. You know, the gamut is, is huge on why people can't tolerate it. Imagine having uh, all that air rushing through your, your nose and your mouth at night. They just can't handle that and tolerate it. And, you know, CPAP is a great therapy for those people that can tolerate it. Unfortunately, what do we do with the 50% of the people that can't tolerate it? You know, what do you do? Just let them go? So that's where dental sleep medicine comes into play. Yeah, and just to, to cover what makes apnea such a, a bad disease, what, what can it do to people and over what time frame? What a great question. So when I talk to my patients, you know, a, a lot of people listening to this may no, not know what the word apnea means. And what I found in the last 13 years that I've been treating the CPAP intolerant patients is I rarely find that a patient will come to the practice that completely understands their disease. So the first thing that I like to help them with is to understand what the sleep study means. And let's kind of talk about what, what that's all about, Rich. Um, in order for somebody to have a diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea, they have to be screened. There has to be some type of diagnostic component to it. And that's either done through an attended overnight sleep study. And hi, my name is John. I have obstructive sleep apnea. Um, so I have had six full-blown attended polysomnograms. That's what the word PSG stands for. And that means you go to either a hospital or a sleep center. You spend the night. They hook you up to 18 to 21 leads from head to toes. And they connect that all to a box. They hang the box on the side of the bed. They videotape you while you're sleeping. And they tell you to have a great night's sleep. Well, you can imagine that, Rich. I'm, it, it's, it's not comfortable. And that is the industry standard. And then that information is interpreted by a RPSGT. That stands for Registered Polysomnographic Technician. And then that information is given to a, a sleep physician. And the diagnosis has to come from a board-certified sleep physician. That's the only way you can have a diagnosis. Things have kind of changed in the industry, and more and more people are in the industry are turning to a home sleep testing device where you wear the device in the privacy of your own home and in your own bed, and that data is interpreted by a board-certified sleep physician in your state, and then you get a diagnosis. So that's the way it goes, and we want to talk about apnea and hypopnea. You've done six of these sleep studies? Yes, but you have to understand, I'm obsessed with uh, sleep. Once my, my line is, when I speak, uh, once the sleep bug bites you, you're in trouble. So I'd like to do a lot of research, and uh, that, that's why I've been in the sleep lab so much. So let's try and help uh, the listeners understand apnea, because we hear that word all the time, and what does it mean? So the easiest way for me to explain it to my patients is I actually have a cork in my office. 
and I hold the cork up to my airway, to my throat, and I say, imagine having a cork stuck in your airway for 10 seconds or longer. That's considered an apneic event or apnea. So when I say the word apnea, I want you to think of cork in your airway for 10 seconds or longer. Then there's what's called hypopnea. And to help the patients understand what that word means, I have a straw. And I say, imagine breathing through a straw throughout the night. You would have some flow, but it would not be great flow. So if you breathe through a straw for 10 seconds or longer, that is considered a hypotonic event. And that's the way I help them understand the results of their diagnostic sleep study. Yeah, my dad had apnea, and I remember when I was little, I didn't know what it was, but he would snore. And he would go, uh, uh, you know, and I wouldn't hear anything for a few seconds. And then he would gasp and start breathing again. And so to someone observing, that's what, it, what I experienced. Yeah, well, you know, that's kind of the same way I grew up, Rich. <clears throat> Excuse me. My dad was a champion snorer. And I remember him, um, he would quit breathing for what seemed like eternity. And as a kid, I would wake up and say, breathe, 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 so I can breathe. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that that, that time seemed like an eternity. And we see people that quit breathing for, you know, as long as a minute and 30 seconds in a lot of cases. That's crazy. Well, he died the day after his 57th birthday. And... um, from cardiovascular issues. He was never sick a day in his life. He was a dentist. He was six foot five, 290 pounds. Uh, his, his, interestingly enough, his brother and their father both died at the age of 57. And if you look back in the lineage, there has been no male that has lived past the age of 57 in three generations. So I made it. And here's what's, if you put all the pieces of the puzzle together, they all had obstructive sleep apnea, but back at that time, no one was looking at airway health. So that's why I'm so passionate too, right? about this. Yeah, like I said, hello, my name's John, and I have obstructive okay. sleep apnea. And oh, by the way, I'm CPAP intolerant. Okay, well, it's good that you broke the cycle and you understand it. And like you said, now I understand why you're so passionate about it. Wait. Yeah, absolutely. What? So what are... Um, again, just to reaffirm for people, what happens if you have apnea and how long do people have it before it's diagnosed and, you know, what can it do to you over what time period? It's a great question, Rich. So according to a study done by ResMed, ResMed is the world's largest leading distributor of CPAP devices. It takes an average of 5.2 years for someone to be diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea. So, you know, the big thing is, how do we identify the at-risk individuals and you know, what is going to be the implementation of a strategy to slow or prevent the disease? Um, it's all through the literature that we need early intervention. Um, care needs to be more accessible and cost effective. Um, I think you need to engage family members and primary care physicians um, because this disease has severe cardiovascular consequences, uh, diabetes, um, the cost for the untreated obstructive sleep apnea patient to uh, the healthcare system and the workplace is about $4.3 billion a year, Uh, 77% um, correlation with diabetes, sexual dysfunction, uh, stroke, GERD. And, you know, it's basically like we like to say is one in four Americans uh, are undiagnosed with this. And then 
you know, it, it's tied to depression, it's tied to Alzheimer's, it's tied to glaucoma, um, it's tied to, tied to cancer. So pretty much my line is there is not one organ in the human body that doesn't fall victim to this disease. And, you know, one, one of the big reasons is um, obstructive sleep apnea is a systemic inflammatory disease. Then we have chronic inflammation of the body, and that leads to major problems. We have sleep fragmentation that leads to oxidative stress and glucose intolerance, and all that has an effect over the entire body. I guess you could also picture that someone's choking you out, you know, 10, 20, 30 times an hour all night long. Yeah, I mean, you know, we see, you know, I, I show a, a video in my programs of a gentleman that is not breathing for 70 seconds out of 103 seconds of the video. I don't think I so we see, yeah, it's, it's uh, very disturbing. And, and the big problem is that they end up in this hypoxic state um, where they're not getting, you know, oxygenation of all the cells of the body. And you'll see people that will be saturated down in the levels of 70%. So what does that mean? If anybody's ever been in the hospital and they're hooked up to all the leads and they're looking at, you know, pulse oximetry, if, if your O2 desaturations go below 90%, the alarm is going off. Right. So just imagine somebody being at 70% for a minute and 30 seconds. It's very disturbing. Yeah. It, it, it's bad not for the that, entire body. Uh, not only that, I mean, what's the range of apneas? Like some people have it, I've heard. 20, 30 times an hour. So, if, you know, what if you're in bed for eight hours and you have it uh, 10 times an hour? <laughs> it's yeah, well, that's, that, that, you know, and, and yeah, you that, could have 100 apneas during the night. That's horrible. <clears throat> that's nothing, Rich. So, you know, it's called the apnea hypopnea index. And five to 15 events per hour is mild obstructive sleep apnea. 15 to 30 events per hour is moderate obstructive sleep apnea and greater than 30 events per hour is severe obstructive sleep apnea. I've seen patients that have had an AHI of 108. So you can do the math on that, 108 events per hour. That's crazy. Yeah, that's horrible. Uh, at, at what level do people, um, well, I guess probably the only people that come for help are the people that are symptomatic, but is there a level at which someone could not be symptomatic? You know, they wake up, maybe they're a little bit tired, but they feel fine all day, and then they go to sleep, and they have apnea, and they just don't know it? Yeah, I mean, you know. they don't have symptoms? Yeah, the, you know, if you look at the literature, um, the numbers are anywhere from 29% to 80% of the American population. It depends on what, what study you look at. So one of the ways, yeah, right? One of the ways we screen our patients um, in our office for potential airway issue issues, it's a form called Stop Bang. And it was just absolutely uh, a great screening tool that was developed by the anesthesiology community um, to look for people that had obstructive sleep apnea and were not diagnosed yet. So what does it stand for? The S stands for, do you snore? The T stands for, are you tired? The O stands for obstruction. Has anyone seen you have events where you quit breathing at night? Those witnessed apneic events where you stop breathing right. and the P is pressure or hypertension. The bang component is body mass index greater than 35. The A is age. 
greater than 50. The N is neck size, greater than 15 and three quarter inches. And the G is gender, male gender. If you have a positive response to at least three of those, you're at high risk of having undiagnosed obstructive sleep apnea. So in my practice, um, we screen our patients for airway health. We don't use scary words like apnea and hypopnea for the undiagnosed patient. I like to talk about airway health. And then you can start to look at the medications that they're on. If they're on, you know, antihypertensive, so they're, they're diabetic, um, they're taking medications for GERD, those are all clues for you that should help you in understanding that patient most likely has an airway issue. Then we can look in the mouth and we can look for a high vaulted palate. We can look for what's called a scalloped tongue where there are indentations throughout the tongue. You can look at their gum situation. And it's funny that in a a study that was done, 60% of the patients that had obstructive sleep apnea had periodontal disease. So those are some clues. Quick question. Sure, go ahead. Go. Um, Do people that breathe through their mouth have apnea more than breathe through their nose? That's a great question, Rich. So if you look at some of the studies where they took normal individuals that did not have obstructive sleep apnea, and they put them through a sleep study, and they blocked their nose, and they became mouth breathers, their AHI went to 43. So that would mean they're severe, 43 events per hour. When they blocked their mouth and let them become nasal breathers, their AHI went down to one. So there's a huge correlation with mouth breathing. We're not supposed to be mouth breathers. We were created to be uh, nasal breathers. So if there's a problem with their nose, then that is another indication that there is probably an underlying airway issue. Okay. And then um, with the, uh, you said you saw evidence of periodontal disease in like 60% of people that had apnea? Yeah, yeah. 60% of the people with obstructive sleep apnea have periodontal disease. And that's pretty high. Yeah, I guess I bet you that what happens is, um, this is my guess, but I bet you that breathing through your mouth more often um, and it probably hanging open when you have the apnea, it, I bet you it alters the gut bacteria, or not the gut bacteria, the bacteria in your mouth the microbiome of your mouth, and that the ones that are, um, you know, aerobic tend to predominate instead of anaerobic, and that probably causes, this is my guess, it causes periodontal disease. Yeah, I, I, I think that, that that's a great answer, Rich. Um, I think you have to look at the, in, the, the increase in the oxidative stress to the body due to that hypoxia. And then the other thing is this, that when you are a nasal breather, we admit nitric oxide and Nitric oxide is great for killing off uh, viruses. When you're a mouth breather, you emit very little nitric oxide. So, like I said, yeah, there's a correlation between everything in the body and sleep apnea. And being a mouth breather adds lots of issues. We know from a dental standpoint, um, you know, drying out the mouth like that leads to increase in decay and as well as the, the periodontal condition. Wait, so when you breathe out through your nose, what nitric oxide gets entrained in your exhalation? Yeah, nit- nose? yeah n- no, it's through the inhalation. So nit- nitric oxide is emitted and that is critical for us um, in, our, in our health. Really? That's weird. So when you breathe yeah. in through your nose, 
nitric oxide is emitted from your body and then gets entrained in the incoming airstream? Correct. So, you know, nitric oxide increases the efficiency of oxygen exchange and increases blood oxygen absorption 18% more than does mouth breathing. It's a huge, potent oh, vasodilator. Wow. Huh. So it's really, really critical uh, that we are nasal breathers. Nitric oxide release through uh, nasal breathing is six times greater than that that we find if, if in those patients that are oral breathers. And, you know, the greater concentration uh, of nitric oxide is required to kill viruses in vitro. So, you know, if, if you're if you're not breathing through your nose, there are some major issues there for you. That's amazing because now I know why people say breathing through your nose and out through your mouth. You're the first person right. I well, you know, talk to that said why. Now it makes sense. One of the great athletes, Lance Armstrong, was absolutely uh, one of the great, greatest uh, nasal breathers. And, you know, look, look what it did for him. And when I bring that up, people always say, you know, different things that I'm, I'm not going to comment on. But we all, all, all athletes know the importance of nasal breathing. I mean, look at the NFL and the number of athletes that use those breathe the right strips, right? They're I've doing that for a reason, sleeping. right? So it's just not sleep. I mean, you know, they want to make sure their nose is open because, as I said before, you increase the efficiency of that, that oxygen exchange and increase blood oxygen absorption 18% more than if you breathe through your mouth. That's pretty right, cool so stuff. What, so, so is there a CPAP company that not only humidifies the air from mouth breathers but entrains a small amount of nitric oxide? to help breathing? That's a great question. No, I've not seen that. Well, that probably would be a good idea, right? If you could test that. At, you know, then from, you know, when, when you're awake, imagine if you had like a lozenge that you kept in your mouth that releases small amounts of nitric oxide. So that would get entrained in your mouth air. You know, if you don't breathe through that your would nose. Be gr- that would be, gr- that'd be great. There's a, there's, so first of all, um, I work with a lot of ENTs um, with patients that have uh, nasal problems. We use cone beam technology in our practice, which is a 3D scan of the entire skull. So you can check out the patient's paranasal complex and their septums. And then there's a product called Mute, M-U-T-E, by RhinoMed, which goes inside the nose. It's a nasal dilator. And a lot of your athletes are using these now. Uh, the, the, it's called the Mute Turbine. And then we also use the mutes to assist our patients in being nasal breathers versus oral breathers. It's a great product. Once you put them in your nose, yeah, is, it's, it's like it completely opens up your nose and you're like, wow, I can't believe how much air I get in. What is it, how does it act? What does it do? It just, it, it's, it's splinting the, uh, it's dilating the nose open. You know what? It's a very cool Another product. Thought occurred to me. Another thought occurred to me, you know, like, um, when you have a sexual dysfunction, I would think one of the problems is you don't produce enough nitric oxide. I guess it's probably how Viagra works. So if you're, if, if this is, again, it's just speculation, but it's coming from what you're saying. If you have that dysfunction, I wonder if that hurts your ability to, to emit nitric oxide in your, in your nose. I yeah, there, the there are a lot of other, between those two. It's a great spot, Rich, but there are other issues that come into play, and, and we don't have time in this podcast to go down that road. But, you know, think of how many people, how many men um, have ED 
and you know they've never had their airway evaluated. So you open up the airway, and your entire body gets healthy. I mean, what's the new big thing with men, right? I always say that in our programs, I pick out a gentleman, and I'll say, hey, how's your tea? And I said, and I'll make a comment, I'm not talking about your English breakfast tea. And everybody's like, what are you talking about? Testosterone, right? So we know right. if we right. rectify the body and help it to breathe properly, the hormone levels come back up. So all good stuff happens when we treat the airway. Okay, and I, you know, I haven't even asked you. I'm sorry about, you know, how dentists can uh, certain ones help people sleep better when they don't tolerate the CPAP. And from what I've heard, it's from a, it's like a prosthetic that goes in the mouth that advances what the lower jaw to keep the airway open. Or yeah, great, great help? question, Rich. Um, so the, for the 50 percent of the population that are CPAP intolerant, you know, my question has always been, what do we do for those individuals? Do you kick them to the curb and just let them go off and into outer space and let them deal with all their medical issues? Or do we try and look for alternative therapy? So that's where dentists that have a uh, specific interest in dental sleep medicine can offer an oral appliance that does move the lower jaw or the mandible forward. And as you move the mandible or lower jaw forward, it pulls the tongue off the back of the throat and assists in keeping the airway open at night. So I've been wearing an appliance for the last 13 years. Um, I had moderate obstructive sleep apnea. When I wear my appliance, I have no issues. I don't have sleep apnea then. And it's a great adjunct therapy for those patients that cannot tolerate CPAP. So is it, um, what does it look like, the appliance? Does it like go over your teeth like a mouth guard or what does it look like and feel? Yeah, it's, so, you know, they're all custom fabricated. There are over 153 FDA cleared devices that we can choose from. I have my personal favorites. I've tried about 25 different appliances. They go over your upper jaw, they go over your lower jaw, and then there's some mechanism to either pull or push the lower jaw forward. And that's how all the appliances work by advancing that lower jaw forward by either a push or pull mechanism. And they're highly, highly with, effective. Uh, with jaw pain, if it does this for hours and hours at a time? Great question. Um, if you fabricate the appliance properly, um, when you remove the appliance, you will have notice that your bite is off. So we have what's called, what I personally call a bite exerciser. It helps to reposition the lower jaw in place that's worn for you know 10 to 15 minutes while the you know the patient's doing their their normal morning routine and you know very few patients have jaw joint issues um if they follow our instructions properly and if the appliance is fabricated accurately and properly as well hmm. okay and then uh, you know i've seen like uh snore rx you know i even bought it years ago and uh as you you know you throw it in a pot it boils and you stick it in your mouth and it's yeah, like yeah. mold to your mouth but uh, it didn't really work too well and it, it seemed like i don't know it's just like a giant mouthpiece and it, it, are these fabricated in such a way not only that they're more effective because they're custom but um, you know they're, they're less intrusive in your mouth when you're sleeping so the devices that you're talking about are called the boil and bite that you just <laughs> alluded to um, you know i love it when patients come in with those because typically First of all, they're massive in your mouth, as you just alluded to, and I want an appliance that has low volume so I can maximize 
the oral cavity volume and give the patient room for, to have their tongue get up and out of the way. And typically, those boil and bite devices will cause a lot of jaw joint problems. So I'm not a big fan of those. Um, and, and, you know, like I said, we see people that have tried those all the time and uh, come in and we show them a, a custom-made device and see how comfortable it is. Okay. And then what's the success rate with the uh, jaw advancement devices? Are they tolerated by most people or do some people still can't take them? Um, once again, another great question. Um, the majority of our patients have a very high success rate and, and a high compliance. Um, once again, I think it depends on what device you select out of the over 153 FDA cleared devices uh, for comfort and, and to minimize the volume of the appliance so that there's lots of room for that tongue to get up and out of the airway. Um, and we have great results with our oral appliance therapy. All right. And then um, is a sleep study and prescription required in order to get one of them? Or is it uh, less of a pathway than CPAP? No. In order for any dentist to appropriately treat someone with an oral appliance, you first of all have to have a diagnosis from a board-certified sleep physician. Hmm. That diagnosis cannot come from a primary care physician. It's got to come from a board-certified sleep physician. Once you have the diagnosis, and typically the insurance companies like to see the patient's uh, try CPAP initially. Um, some insurance companies don't. Um, and if the patients can't tolerate it and we have a prescription to provide oral appliance therapy, we're absolutely good to go. And it is covered by the patient's medical insurance. Okay. That's great. So it's awesome. Um, it's a win-win for everyone. Have, have uh, scientists observed experimentally if it's as efficacious as CPAP or is it slightly worse or better? So that, that is an awesome question. There was a, a big publication in 2015 that compared multiple um, parameters that, that kind of put CPAP and oral appliance therapy head to head. And it depends on what you're looking at. Um, you know, it depends on, there was a huge study done, um, it was called the SAVE trial that looked at how long patients actually wore their CPAP. And the average CPAP user wore their appliance 3.3 hours a night. So the question then becomes, if you look deeply into sleep and look at what's called sleep architecture, the patient is only being covered for approximately a third of the night. Typically, oral appliance yeah. therapy users wear their appliance all night. So you're covering the disease for the entire night of sleep. So Yeah, I mean, um, that sounds dangerous to only use the CPAP part of the night because that that seems even, well, I don't know. I don't know if it's worse or not, but I've heard stories of people having CPAPs and they don't use it one night and they die. So oh, absolutely. you're kind of creating that effect every night by only using it for part of the night. You know? I, I have a colleague that uh, speaks with me and his brother died at age 37 with a CPAP under his bed. Oh, and so we hear stories like that all the time. So the moral of the story is, is this is a severe disease that does, um, take people's lives. It's because of the associated comorbidities um, with obstructive sleep apnea that takes a life. And, you know, as I always say to my fellow colleagues, dental peers, if you want to involve yourself in something that's absolutely going to have a huge impact on someone's life and has the potential to save a life, 
get involved with treating the CPAP intolerant patients with oral appliance therapy. It's absolutely life changing. Well, so how you know I know you know unfortunately the entire world can't come to you. So if people are local, you know how do they get in touch and you know can they reach you? And then if they're not local, what are some resources for them? Sure. So they can always Google. Um, you know, oral appliance therapy for sleep apnea, and that should bring up a provider's name in their area. The American Academy of Sleep Medicine has a website that you can go to their website, type in your location, and it will give you names of dentists that have a special interest in treating the CPAP intolerant patient with oral appliance therapy. And that's a great resource for people because those uh, if you're a member of the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine, um, you've gone through a lot of training, and that's why you're part of that group. Well, very good. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. You have uh, tons of knowledge about this stuff, so it's been a really great call. Oh, thanks, Rich. I appreciate it. I'm honored to be on here, and hopefully this message will uh, touch people's lives that have airway issues and can't tolerate CPAP and seek alternative therapy so that they can have a healthy, happy, long life. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.